in the fifth week of our profile series, we're looking at different aspects of Jesus. We're trying to get a more complete profile, a more complete picture of who he is because, you know, the more we know him, the better we understand him, the closer we want to be to him. And I've been encouraged by the emails that we're getting. We're learning a lot in this series, but if you've been around Hope for a while, you know that we're not just content in learning more Bible stuff. We're not just content in getting more knowledge. We want to know, what do we do with what we've learned? You know, how's it going to impact my life today? And I think maybe the greatest response that could come out of this series would be many of us saying this, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to sign on to be your disciple. Jesus, I want to figure out how to live the life that you've called me to. But I'm just going to warn you, if that's your response to this series, uh, it's going to get a little tougher this weekend because we're going to get up close and personal with Jesus, the minimalist. And we're going to be looking at the fundamental principle of life that I believe is imperative that as disciples we learn. And I'm going to just tell you, for 21st century Americans, this is going to be a hard dose of reality. But if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 12. Let me give you a little bit of background. I want to see what Jesus had to say about this whole idea of self-denial. John chapter 12. If you've read the Gospels, you know that throughout the Gospels, Jesus often made this statement to his close friends. He would say, my hour has not yet come. And what he meant was this, the time has not arrived for me to go public with my agenda. Now, what's interesting, those who were followers of Jesus, those who had been anticipating Jesus, they were pretty sure they already knew what his agenda was. He was going to come to this earth. He was going to come as the Messiah. He was going to overthrow Rome. He was going to become a king. He was going to set up his kingdom and he was going to rule and reign forever and ever and ever. And that's what people had been looking for. That's what they had been longing for for centuries. And then finally, Finally, you get to John chapter 12. There's the great Palm Sunday parade. You know, Jesus comes in on the back of a donkey. Everybody's shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us now. That gives you some insight as to what the expectation was to the arrival of Jesus. They were laying down the palm branches. They were thinking, he is finally, finally here. And to make it official, Jesus says this in John chapter 12, verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, Jesus says, you've been waiting for it. My time has finally arrived. The Son of Man is here. By the way, this term, the Son of Man, actually comes from Daniel. The Old Testament writer, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, he says this. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus here, the son of man, is mentioned, but Daniel doesn't say a whole lot about the son of man. But it's interesting, between the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, there's about 400 years, it's often referred to as 400 years of silence. But during that 400-year period, whole books were written on this topic of the son of man. And they basically described the Son of Man, when he came, he was going to be like the Terminator. I mean, he was just going to put a smack down on all of the enemies of Israel. He was going to smash their armies. He was going to destroy all of the nations. And then sure enough, Jesus shows up, John chapter 12, verse 23, and says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And when the crowds that were lining the streets that day, when they were listening for Jesus, the anticipation has become a reality. Understand, when Jesus said, the time for the Son of Man has finally arrived, you know what these guys were thinking? They were thinking, now that he's here, now that the Son of Man is here, we'll take it over. We're going to break the back of Rome. We're going to take what belongs to us. We're going to take back control of our lives. We're going to take back control of our nation. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. But just as Jesus often does, he throws them a curve. And he makes a statement that I want us to focus in on this weekend. John chapter 12, verse 24, he said this, Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many Sees. Now, I want to think for just a minute about this analogy that, that Jesus 
uses. You may remember back when you were in school studying about the agricultural revolution. And there were actually several revolutions. The earliest, they say, took place around 10,000 BC. But there's a reason it's called a, a revolution. It's because when it happened, it changed everything. I mean, up to this point, people pretty much spent all of their existing hours looking for just food. In fact, when I was in the Central African Republic a couple of years ago, at that point, it was the poorest nation on the planet. The annual household income was $240 a year. Can you imagine living off of $20 a month? And after about the second day, Jim and I, we were walking around the, the capital, Bangui, together. And I said, Jim, I had the impression that these people spend pretty much all their time trying to figure out how they're going to scrape together three meals a day. And he says, Mike, you've got it all wrong. They spend 99% of their time wondering, are we going to get one meal today? But you got to understand, that's pretty much the way life was before the agricultural revolution. But let me try to explain why and how that revolution changed everything. Let's imagine that two people, we have two people who lived back in the day before the agricultural revolution. We'll call them Dave and Brian. I pick on those guys because Dave is our Holly Springs campus pastor. Brian's over in Morrisville. Let's give a shout out. Those guys are doing great jobs as campus pastors. But this is why they fit so well into the illustration. They are both graduates of NC State. And you know, if you graduate from NC State, you've got to know something about agriculture, right? So we'll go ahead and use these guys, right? So it's before the, before the agricultural revolution. These, these guys are hanging out. They have seeds. And in their mind, a seed is something you eat. It'll keep you from starving. If you can't kill a rabbit, if you can't kill, kill a squirrel, at least you have some seeds to eat. So maybe they would collect them and they would keep them in the pantry. They could always fall back on the seeds. But one day, Brian is walking down the road in Fuquay and he looks out in the field and there is Dave burying some seeds in the dirt. And Brian is like, Dave, have you lost your mind? What are you doing? We could be eating those seeds. That's our food. But Dave responds, Brian, I have made the most amazing discovery. I've discovered, yeah, you can eat a seed or you can just leave them on the pantry shelf. Nothing's really going to happen except eventually they're going to rot. Or you can take that seed and you can bury it in the ground. And this is what I discovered. It will grow and it will produce fruit. They will produce vegetables. It is a miracle. We're going to have food. That's the agricultural revolution. Now, since we're playing, let's pretend, let's imagine you're the seed. I mean, you've been sitting on the shelf for a while and Dave walks in one day and looks you in the eye and says, I'm going to plant you. You're like, you're going to plant me? What does that mean? going to bury me in the dirt, no fresh air, no light. I don't think so, right? But Dave takes you anyway and he plants you. And what happens is you begin to germinate and you send out roots and you get nourishment. You send out roots and you get moisture. And, and over time you begin to sprout and eventually you become maybe an apple tree and you begin to bear apples and you discover, wow, now I get it. This is the reason I exist. But here's my point. If you would have never buried if you'd never been buried, if you would have never died, you would have never experienced that for which you were created. You would have never produced apples. You would have never produced anything. You would have just sat on the shelf until you rotted. But you discovered that what seemed like death was actually the secret to life. Now understand, that's what Jesus is talking about. John chapter 12, verse 24. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So according to the wisest man who ever lived, Jesus says that's just the way things are. It's the law of the seed. You're going to have to die at some point if you're really going to experience life. Now, how central is this principle to Jesus' teaching? Well, let me give you a couple of verses. Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. 
How about Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35? We, we heard these verses in our worship time together this weekend. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. It's this idea that you're going to die to yourself, your desires, your wishes. You're gonna take, they're going to take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus talked about this principle time and time again. It's this principle of self-denial. And he says, you gotta understand this principle. But because this principle is so often misunderstood, I need to say something about what self-denial isn't. For example, self-denial doesn't mean you have to go live in a country you don't like. It doesn't mean you have to wear ugly clothes. It doesn't mean you have to live in a cave. It doesn't mean you have to date unattractive people. It doesn't mean you have to inflict pain upon yourself. Doesn't mean you have to eat a gluten-free diet. Doesn't mean you have to drive a Prius. None of those things. That's, that's not what self-denial means. Understand, Jesus taught about the law of the seed so that we can understand what it really means to experience the life that he designed for us to experience. And this is what I want to make sure you hear this weekend. As Christians, you will never, ever find that life any other way. Without dying, you will never experience that life any other other way. So let me just give you the principle that we're going to talk about over the next few minutes, and then we'll unpack it with some application. Here it is. I'll do what I don't want to do in order to become what I desperately want to become. In other words, I'll do what I don't want to do. I will deny myself. I'll die to myself. I'll die to my desires. I'll die to my wishes in order to become what deep down inside I desperately want to become in this life. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you four applications. What does that look like in our lives? If we were to die to our, our desires, our dreams, our wishes, our own will, what would that look like? I want to give you four applications of the law of the seed. And as we go through these, I want you to rate yourself on each one from one to ten. Ten would be, I've done a great job in this area. I have pretty much died as much as you can possibly die in this area. One is, I got a whole lot of dying to do, okay? I'm not there yet. So one to 10, and uh, we'll just call it the death index. How's that for a cheerful feeling coming to church on the weekend? Let's see where you measure on the death index. Here's the first one. I will choose the invisible over the visible. I will choose the invisible over the visible. What do I mean by that? Well, at some point in your Christian journey, you have to decide, am I going to pursue the visible things that culture and society tells me are the things I need to pursue if I'm going to experience life like power and fame and success and notoriety and recognition? Or am I going to pursue the sometimes invisible things that God considers important? Now, as you would expect, this is beautifully demonstrated in the life of Jesus. Let me just show you a couple of very unique passages. Over in John chapter 7, Jesus has an interesting encounter that leads to a conversation with his family. John chapter two, 7 verse 2, but when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And these guys are like, Jesus, you got something going on here. You could be the hottest thing in culture right now. You could be hotter than Kim Kardashian or Caitlyn right now. You could be in the press. But Jesus, you've got to stop hiding out in secret. you got to go public. you got to get some visibility. That's how you succeed. That's how you find happiness in life. But again, notice Jesus' response in verse 6. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. There it is again. Jesus is like, that's not what it's all about. That's not how I roll. 
There's another time over in Luke chapter 20, Jesus is having this encounter, what I like to call them the religious snobs of the day. You got the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they're all there together, and they're kind of going at it with Jesus. Now understand these religious guys, they love to walk around in long robes, they love to be greeted with respect, you know, they had the best seats in the synagogue, they had places of honor at all the banquets. In the minds of these guys, it was all about being seen, it was all about being noticed, it was all about being acknowledged, it was all about visibility. But you notice you get to the very next chapter, Luke chapter 21, verse 1, as Jesus looked up. In other words, right after, as he's having this encounter with these guys, as he looks up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, in the kingdom of God, things get measured in ways that aren't visible in this world. And Jesus says, by kingdom standards, this woman gave a lot more than those who were giving big gifts. Now, let me just clarify something here. It doesn't mean that it's wrong to give big gifts. I just want to make sure you understand that, right? It means don't get sucked into the trap that fame and glory and recognition will give you the life that you really want. It means that in God's kingdom, God uses a different measuring stick than the world does. So you gotta ask yourself, have I died to this area? I mean, some of you, if you're honest, when I talk to you, I know you've been sucked into the worship of visibility and notoriety at work. You're constantly pursuing recognition, credit, you know, trying to rub shoulders, trying to scheme for advancement, spending time with those who can get you where you want to go in the company, right? But it's not just true in the marketplace, it's true at churches. You know, people like to get in in the middle of things. People will come up and ask me, who's the inner circle? How do you get on the inner circle? People try to get recognized, they, they, they try to get an audience. One day, uh, somebody had called and I had never met him and he, he wanted to have an appointment with me. And so I came down, I met him in the coffee shop, we sat down, we began to talk. And he says, last week was my first week at Hope and I'm thinking about attending here regularly. I said, that's awesome. He said, I came from a small church, I was a big fish in a small pond. If I attend Hope, I wanna know, can I be a big fish in a big pond? You may want to know, he's no longer here. He didn't stay very long, right? He didn't stay very long. Again, rate yourself on this one. If God calls you to live in obscurity, are you, are, are you comfortable living in obscurity in God's kingdom? Are you comfortable being in the background? Or do you find yourself in life, at church, wherever you are, in the marketplace, constantly searching for the spotlight, you know? Do you th say things like, you know what, I want influence. I want power. I want to be known. Not too long ago, I was with some pastors in Dallas, Texas for kind of a small intimate meeting. And these are some of the pastors of the biggest, most successful churches in America. Me being there is like putting whipped cream on an onion, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, but I'm there with these guys. And when they introduced me as the pastor of Hope Community Church, this is how they introduced our church. This is the most effective church in America that nobody knows about. And I thought, I like that. I like the fact that without a whole lot of notoriety, God is working through this congregation to reach the triangle and change the world. How are you doing in this area? Can you live without the spotlight? Are you maybe more into the visible things? You may remember when we talked about things that God uses in our lives to transform our lives, we talked about those secret private disciplines, what God sees going on in our life that nobody sees. He says, when you, get, when you give, don't ring a bell. When you fast, don't look hungry. 
when you pray, go into your closet. I'll see it. Nobody else needs to know. Here's the second one. I'll choose to release what I have instead of protecting it. And I think that's just hard. And I don't necessarily think it's because we're greedy. Sometimes I think we just have the fear. We're very, you know, we're calculated. We think through things. And we think, man, if I let go of what I have, even if I feel like God wants me to, what if I get to the end and I don't have enough? The Apostle Paul says this in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, let me just ask you a question. That's what Paul said. That's what Jesus said. When you watch TV or you flip through a magazine and you look at the ads, do they send the message to our culture that it's more blessed to give than receive? No way. We don't live in that kind of world. We have a culture that pretty much screams at us, you're nothing more than a collection of your appetites and your desires. You get out there. You satisfy your appetites. You satisfy your desires as much as you can because that's the way you find real life. And unfortunately, we often buy into it. But again, we see where Jesus and his teaching is so countercultural. He says, no, 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 no. That's not the way to find life. It's counterintuitive. But if you really want to find life, you got to give. you got to release. That's the way you find life. Later on, Paul wrote a letter to the church at Corinth. And this is what he said. Give, but not out of compulsion. In other words, don't give out of pressure. Why, why shouldn't we give out of compulsion, Paul? Why? Because God loves a what? cheerful giver. And it's interesting in the Greek, the word translated cheerful is our word hilarious. So Paul's basically saying this, when you walk out of our auditoriums, regardless of what campus you are, and you walk by those offering boxes and you put your money in, you should be laughing your head off. You're not buying in that one, are you, right? Now, let me just say this. If you're here for the first time and you can't give joyfully, don't give, don't give. If you're here for the second time and you can't give joyfully, don't give. If you're here for the third time and you can't give joyfully, well, you know what? You need to fake it. You need to fake it. It is time to take a risk because I'm telling you, eventually the only way to realize that what Jesus said is actually true, real life comes from giving, real life comes from releasing. The only way to figure out it's true is to trust him and try it. I'm telling you, you watch, you observe people whose lives are devoted to giving and you will see them come to life. But you watch people, thank you, Mac, you watch people whose lives are devoted to protecting and to hanging on what they've got. I'm telling you, you will watch them rot. I mean, have you ever known a really, truly happy, selfish person? I bet you haven't. And I'm telling you, when you look back on your life at the times where God allowed you and gave you the ability to give, you're going to remember those times as the greatest moments in your life. But let me just say this. This isn't a principle that's just limited to individuals. This, this law of the seed also applies to churches. See, as a church, we don't exist for ourselves. We exist to proclaim the life-changing message of Jesus Christ to a dying, screwed up, messed up world. See, we exist to give a cup of water in Jesus' name. We exist to feed the hungry. We exist to comfort the sick. We, we exist to visit those in prison. And I'm telling you, as a church, the day we stop existing for others and the day that we start existing for ourselves, it's the day we begin to die. It's true in your personal life. It's true in the church. So rate yourself on this one. How well have you died to the need to protect, keep, hold on to, hoard, you know? Some of you would say one. Some of you would say 10. Praise God, and it's incredible. 
I had a chance to sit down this week with the ROTS. There are, there are mission partners in Costa Rica. They're there with Tactica, doing a phenomenal job there. And they're, they're carrying the gospel, the life-changing message of Jesus Christ to those who are in authority because they're thinking, man, if we can reach those in authority, it's going to begin to filter down. And we're going to see this country change, the very fabric of this country change with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I sat down and I interviewed them for a while. You'll see the entire interview on August 30th at Vision Night. But there was something they said I thought applied to what we're talking about this weekend. Watch the side screen. Now this week, I'm talking about how Jesus leads us into a life of self-denial. You guys came to that point in your lives where you're like, wow, there's some things that we're going to have to release, say no to, to follow Jesus as he's leading us. What was that like in you guys as far as your security and all? You know, as newlyweds, we, we immediately took that first step into the American dream. So we had purchased a huge piece of property. We had waterfront property, 16 acres along a river gorgeous area, built a beautiful home, and we were living the dream. We had two little babies, we had an excellent career, we had a wonderful church, we looked really healthy, really spiritual, really on target, and all the while God was saying, and what part of this has eternal value? What is this? What, what are you living for? I think there's a time you put it all on the table, and he may not take anything. He may just like, I'm just glad you're willing, now let's go. But then there's sometimes you put it on the table and he said, I'm gonna take most of it. But even then to realize that that's where we find real life. Yeah, I look back on it and I really think, you know, having all that stuff and a lot of times you, you, you don't even realize it when you're in the middle of it, how much those things tie you and hold you down in the sense of serving Jesus. And I remember, uh, man, we, you know, when we left, we sold everything. I mean, literally every pot, every pan, cars, quads, you know, jet skis, everything that we had. And you would think after that, you'd be like, oh, I got nothing to my name anymore. Mm -hmm. But it was the entire opposite. It was incredible freedom in Jesus. Like, Lord, now there's nothing that's holding us back in any part of our life to serve you fully. And that is an awesome feeling, an awesome blessing to be in that spot. I love how Jesus said, unless a seed goes into the ground and dies, right? That's right and you guys have had the chance to experience that. And they're a great couple, but let me say something. It may not be that extreme for you, what God calls you. It may be that extreme for you. But here's the issue. It's not a bad thing to have stuff. It's not a bad thing to enjoy stuff. Some of the most spiritual people in the Bible were heavy hitters. They had a lot of stuff. That's not the issue. Here's the issue. Where's your life focus? Is it on releasing? Are you a channel? Are you a reservoir? Where's your focus? Rate yourself one to 10. Third, it's a hard one. I will choose to forgive over choosing to resent. In other words, I will die to my right to hold a grudge. I will die to my right to seek revenge. Matthew 18, 21, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. And here, understand, Peter's pretty proud of himself because the Talmud, which was kind of the Jewish handbook that they lived by, said you had to forgive somebody three times. So he doubled it, added one for good measure. And he comes to Jesus, how about seven times? See, he's expecting a commendation. And Jesus responds in verse 22, I tell you not seven times, 77 times. And he's not saying the 78 time you can knock them out. He's not saying that. He's saying, don't even have a strategy for getting even. Do you know why that's so hard? Let's be honest. It feels good to get even, doesn't it? It feels natural to get even. It feels like there's life in it when you get even. But is there really life in it when you get even? 
I mean, think about this. How many times have you said to yourself, you know, I, I have been nursing this grudge for years and it has really added to my sense of joy and delight. There's a sparkle in my eye and there's a spring in my step. Thanks to my rage, my resentment, my bitterness. In fact, my bitterness has made me a better person. You ever said that? No. You ever heard anybody say that? No, right? But when you forgive, so you die to your right to get revenge, to get even, you have to release it. But see, this is what Jesus says. Let it go and you'll find life. Hold on to it. You'll find death. Great class coming up September the 3rd about how to deal with forgiveness, how to work through the process of forgiveness. I'd encourage you, if this is an area where you really struggle, if you want to find life, you should check this out. Because at the end of the day, this is the question. What's your strategy for life going to be? Is it going to be getting even with people? Is it going to be hanging on to grudges? Or is it going to be to forgive others? Now, be honest with yourself. Rate yourself 1 to 10. And I'm just going to tell you what some of you already know. Some of you need to make a phone call this weekend. Some of you need to send an email, maybe need to write a letter, but there's an issue that needs to be dealt with, that needs to be let go of, that needs to be released. And I know what you're thinking, but Mike, if I let it go, if I release it, it's like I'm letting them get away with it. It's like I'm letting them off the hook. And again, I remind you, forgiveness isn't for that person. Forgiveness is for you. It cuts the chain that you're dragging this person and this abuse and this experience everywhere you go through life, your bitterness, you carry it to work, you carry it into all your relationships. Forgiveness says, I will no longer see you as indebted to me. I cancel the debt. I release you. I let it go. Jesus is very straightforward on this. He says, if you're going to be my disciple and experience the life that I've got for you, you're going to have to trust me on this one. There's some things you're going to have to forgive, release. You're going to have to let it go if you want to find life, you know. And the fourth is the hardest of all. I will choose to resist sin instead of gratifying the desire to sin. Paul said this in Galatians 5, 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus, look at this, have crucified the flesh with his passions and desire. You've put to death the flesh with its passion. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with passions and desire. Those are actually good things. God gave us our passion and desires. What Paul is saying is this. I'm going to put it to death. I'm going to make the decision not to sin. With God's, with God's help, I'm going, to do, I'm going to repent. I'm going to do a 180, and I'm going to go not in the direction I want to go in. I'm going to die to that, and I'm going to go in God's direction. I just want to say this, and I have been praying about this all week. I believe that God wants to do business in some lives here this weekend when it comes to the area of sin in our life. Maybe for you it's pride, maybe it's anger, maybe it's deceit or envy or prejudice or gossip or lust or some area of immorality. Maybe there's some destructive habit in your life that has just been sucking the life out of you for years. I don't know what it is. You know what it is. God certainly knows what it is. And my guess is it's whispering to you right now, don't listen to Mike. You feed me. You gratify me. Don't give me up. You can't live without me, right? But God is saying this right now. You want to find life? You make the right choice. You do the right thing. You give it up. I know it's not easy. And you may need help. You may need to confess this sin to another person for accountability. 
You may just need to look someone in the eye and say, I've got this secret area of my life nobody knows anything about, but it's killing me, and I'm tired of it. And so I want to give it to God. I want him to kill it. I want, I want to be done with it. Telling someone it may be that first step, something about bringing it into the light. I think one of the things that we don't talk about enough anymore as churches is, is sin and the consequences of sin. But for many of you listening right now at all of our campus, I'm telling you, sin in your life, unconfessed sin, sin in your life that you haven't dealt with, it is literally choking the life out of you. And it may have been doing that for years. But you gotta choose. God won't do anything about it until you say, you know what, God? Kill it. I'm done with it. Kill it. Jesus said, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It produces life. As weird as it sounds, Jesus says, you gotta die before you can live. Let's bow together. Let me just ask you, how's your death index look? When it comes to the area of pride and notoriety and visibility or how about greed? You, no matter what you hear, no matter what you read, you, you just are finding it impossible to become a person of generosity. Regardless of how many messages you hear about forgiveness, you still, you still are bitter and you're still chained to the past. You still seek revenge and to get even. Or maybe there's a sin in your life and from your perspective, it's really not that bad. You, you, you think you can't live without it, but maybe what started out as just a small little nestling has grown into this vulture and it is just eating the life out of you. Jesus said, unless you die, unless you're, you're willing to, to nail it to the cross, you'll never find life. We don't do this very often, but I'm gonna pray here in just a second. And if there's an area that you wanna do business right now, everything inside of you is saying, just get up and leave. I'm gonna encourage you after I pray, just stay in your seat. We have people from our care team. We have people from our small group leaders who would love nothing more than to just come sit alongside you for a few minutes and, and talk with you. Anything you want to talk about, pray with you. Maybe you're here and you've never made that decision to follow Jesus. You've never accepted the free gift of salvation and you've tried everything in the world to find happiness and peace and contentment and life. But everywhere you go, it's a dead end. And maybe you're thinking, okay, now it's time. It's time. Maybe you just need encouragement. Maybe there's just something going on in your life. You would just love to have somebody pray with you. But you know what? This is one of those moments where I believe God wants to do business. And pride will say, get up and walk out. Don't let anybody see you sitting. But I'm telling you, if you do this, it may be the first step in finding freedom in life. Father, we come before you right now, broken people, broken people. But your faithfulness is great. 
Your mercies are renewed every morning. Lamentation tells us, great is your faithfulness. Right now in the hearts of people, let them, let them sense that faithfulness that you're not here to judge them. You're not here to punish them. You came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I pray right now that we will deal with the areas of our life and put them to death. So as counterintuitive as it may seem, we can find real life, the right, the life that we really, really want. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing this one little chorus. And then I'm going to ask everybody just to walk out quietly, but I would please stay, please stay for a few minutes. Whatever God's dealing with your heart, let's, let's just deal with it. Trey, lead us. Cause there's nothing like the name of Jesus. There's nothing like power of the blood. Cause fear trembles when his name is mentioned. He watches over us. There's nothing like the name of Jesus.